For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to the corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Corinne, and happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. Uh, Mother's Day is uh, a day full of gratitude, a day full of uh, pain, and a day of a reminder of your most overwhelming task you've ever been given by the Lord, that being a parent, a mother, some of you. So I just want to stop and pray, and I want to lift someone up right now. She might not like this, but welcome to motherhood. It's a lot of stuff you didn't ask for and you didn't want, but Claire is going to give birth. She's our next mother in line to give birth. I'm not going to point her out because she's kind of shy, but she, if you know her, you love her, and you know she's very close to that big day where she gets to deliver her baby daughter. So let's pray for the moms and for Claire in particular. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we love you. Thank you for moms. Just even the fact that uh, we get to come together in your house on a day with some of our moms in the room with us. It's just a sweet gift, this church family you've given us. And we get to stop and think about our moms. We get to stop and think about our own motherhood, if that's us. We get to sit here in maybe pain for some of us, thinking about children and just sadness. But in all that, we're not alone, and you're with us. You're with every mother in this room. And God, we just ask you to just remind the moms of your presence, your delight in them, in what they're doing as moms. And God, now we lift up Claire, and she gets very close to a sweet, sweet day. I pray that you would be with her. Pray that you would calm her nerves. I pray that you would just give her delight in the fact that you've given her this gift. And God, I pray that she would feel not alone. She would feel surrounded by people and more importantly, her God who loves her so much. God, thank you for this time to be together as a church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Well, we get to walk through this passage. Aubrey asked, what's the passage about? It's about suffering. She's like, do you male pastors ever stop and think about what you're doing and I said yeah uh, but we kind of set the scripture up for a whole year and we don't try to like make it land in a certain way and this is where the Holy Spirit landed this particular passage on Mother's Day and I think it's going to be actually very pertinent to all of us we're going to be talking about waiting and suffering and I want to highlight two studies one might be a little graphic but there's a famous study this guy did on rats if you're a big rat fan, you're not going to like how this story goes. But if you're, you're not a big rat fan, you'll be fine with it. So he was trying to study hope. And he wanted to use rats to kind of, what does hope do inside of someone? Does it actually have any real effect? And he's a psychologist and he wants to know and he uses rats. So what he does is he puts him in water 
to see how long they can last before they drown. And it turns out the domestic rats last quite a bit longer than the wild rats. And he kind of steps back and he thinks, why is that? And he thinks there's got to be something to the domestic rats having hope that there's somebody nearby who's going to step in and help them out. So now he gets more specific on the study. Now he just uses domestic rats and he puts them in water. He lets them swim. And prior, they lasted about 12 minutes. And he had somebody pull them out just as about all those domestic rats had shown to not be able to survive any longer. Somebody takes them out. Then he resets up the, and those rats that have been pulled out get placed back in. So before all this, before any hand of hope had reached down, 15 minutes was sort of the length of time a rat could last. And now these hands that had touched these rats now place those rats back in the water. And those rats last, first time was 15 minutes. The second study, after hope had been introduced, not an hour, not two hours, but 60 hours those rats lasted, and he just thought, that's it. What do those rats have that these others don't? They have hope that something is coming, that there's hope in this. This is what this passage is about. A more serious, Viktor Frankl, a famous Jewish guy, went through the Holocaust and made it. And then he devoted his life to mental health and psychology, and really this question, this meaning of life, like how do people make it in life? Because he went through the worst thing imaginable on earth. Holocaust, his parents to be killed. His wife at the time had to, was forced to abort a baby. Like the worst. And he comes out and he's like, what is it that helped people survive? A few quotes, he's got lots of books. But here's one of his statements. Life is never made unbearable by circumstances. It's only made unbearable by the lack of meaning and purpose. He also says this, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how they're going through. What's the statement? The same thing that the other guy realized. That if someone has something inside of them that says there is hope coming and there's reason to hold on to this, you can hold on for a long time. And the Apostle Paul is going to give the uniquely Christian answer to hope in this world. That's what we're talking about today. Hope in this world, specifically as a Christian. Here's the question kind of that framed my whole walking through this passage. How do we wait in our suffering? As trivial as maybe an emotional strife you're in with somebody you care about, to as painful and as acute as like real severe health issues that you're walking through. Like how do we wait in our suffering? Here's the answer we're going to see from the Apostle Paul. We remember our hope as we look in every possible direction. What do I mean by that? What we see here, there's a lot of verbiage, a lot of verbs being used. There's future verbs, past verbs, and present verbs. Here's how Christians get hope. They've got a hope in the future. They've got a hope as they look back to the past, and they've got a real hope in the very present day. That's what we're doing today as we look for hope and how to wait. So I want to bow and pray and just kind of center our hearts on this scripture and dive in together. So let's pray together. God, every story in here needs hope to some degree. Some stories in here need hope in a very real way. And God, all the Christians in here have a sense of hope, maybe even a deep well of hope. But what I hope happens in this moment through this passage by your spirit is that that hope would be more full, more real, more true, more tangible for the people in this room, myself included. 
So God, be with us as we walk through this passage. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. So if you're a note taker, like I said, we got a future hope, a past hope, and a present hope. What is the future hope? Here's the first. What is our hope about our future? We have an indescribable hope in our future. Here's where I see this. The very first verse, verse 18. Let's read it together. This is a very famous Christian passage. Some of you may have it memorized already. But what does Paul say about our future? Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let me read that again. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So just to go back to our opening illustration, whether it's the rats hoping that someone's going to come and get them above water or Jewish survivors trying to last another day in the Holocaust. What Paul is saying here is not God is going to get us to the moment where we're just back to surviving again. Like our hope is not we're just going to barely get our heads above water and sort of coast. What he says, the glory that is to be revealed is not worth comparing to whatever it is you're in right now. We're not just getting back to neutral. We're getting back to something that is indescribable compared to what Paul says the sufferings of this present time. What are the sufferings of this present time? Just give you a list and sort of, especially for you that don't give yourself the freedom to like feel whatever it is you're feeling or experience it fully, which is more of you than you probably realize. You're like, you were taught, you were trained, your parents, whatever, taught you to move on. Uh, Suck it up, buttercup. Like there are very real sufferings in this room right now. We've got physical suffering. That's probably the easiest thing, like, yep. My knee, my back, minimal, cancer, very real diagnosis that there is no cure for. Paul would say that's a present suffering. We've got mental suffering. Obviously, this is everywhere in our culture. The mental health issues, very real, very painful, just as real, just as painful as physical suffering, sometimes worse because it's such a weird mystical world like your brain and all that it's doing to you working against you and then you combine that with goofy or bad or evil christian theology that sort of pushes that to a side and gives you goofy dumb sometimes evil answers to deal with your mental health we got mental suffering got emotional suffering like as minimal as the suns are out yes my kids are out of the playoffs. It was a terrible Saturday for us yesterday. All my kids wiped out of the playoffs. Like, I'm, like, deeply, like, I'm like, gosh. It's something as serious as, like, I can't even talk about it. I can't even lift my head in church to even pray to God about this. We've got relational suffering. That's one of the things that breaks my heart most, just because that's the whole point of this world. Love. Love of God and love of others. And when you see that broken and distorted, it's like, gosh, that is not how it's supposed to be. Paul would say that is a present suffering. I think of unjust suffering. Those of you that are Christians living in the workplace where it gets harder and harder to be a Christian or to uh, live like a Christian or talk like a Christian or identify as a Christian, that would be unjust suffering. That is the sufferings of the present day. But there are very real 
sufferings in this room. And here's what I was just encouraged by as I read Romans 8.18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This has been true for every Christian who's ever suffered. All the suffering in here matters, and God sees it. But there's been some deep, painful, horrific suffering that brothers and sisters have gone through since Jesus left this earth. And Romans 8.18 was for them just as much as it was for us. And what is Paul comparing this to? He says, it's not worth comparing to what? This glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, it's a little hard because glory is like one of the most Christian words of all time. It's like Jesus, you're good bet on saying Jesus and you'll get a right answer at VBS. Or glory is like, wow, this kid really has it. He just dropped the glory bomb on us. But then you say, hey, little kid, define glory. I don't know. My dad just says it all the time. <laughs> glory is the, the Bible's best attempt to describe the thing about God that's indescribable. And it falls into a few categories. Weight, like weightiness. Light, the light of God and from God. It's his glory. The other thing it tries to describe is his beauty. Like how do you describe how beautiful Jesus is who died for you? It's indescribable. It's his glory. And then the other word that kind of captures glory is significance. Like who has the most glory in this room? We're all kind of on evil level ground here but if a senator walked in significance walks in a president walks in a famous athlete there's a significance about them that's a glory and what Paul is saying the glory that be will be revealed is far more significant than whatever suffering we are in there is nothing on this earth weighty enough to compare it to what you're going through I'll say it this way. There's nothing on earth light enough to compare to what you're going to. There's nothing on earth beautiful enough to be compared to whatever you're going through. There's nothing on earth significant enough to compare it is to whatever you're going through. To put it in terms of your pain, here's how I wrote it so I could understand it. There is no suffering heavy enough to compare to the weight that we will be revealed to you one day. Your suffering is weighty. So weighty, you can't even like lift your head. That does not compare to the weight that will be revealed to you one day. There is no suffering dark enough to compare to the light that will be revealed to you one day. Your suffering is dark. Your mental health is dark. Do not let others say it's not. But Paul says this, the light will not compare to the darkness you are in right now. There is no suffering ugly enough to compare to the beauty that awaits you. And there is no suffering significant enough that compares to the significance of Jesus when he's revealed to you one day. That's what Paul's saying. He is not trying to minimize and push to the side whatever it is we're going through. He's trying to, in whatever human way, with human words, to the best of his ability, by the power of the Spirit, get us to realize it does not compare to what we have coming for us one day. The passage that comes to mind, which is interesting, because the last time I preached this passage was at a funeral for a young lady who died too soon, and I preached it because her mom asked me, preach this passage, please. 
And this is the passage, which is one of the best passages to go to for any of us thinking about the future. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us, what? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What is Paul saying there? He's saying the exact same thing he's saying here. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the future glory that will be revealed to me one day. How do we have uniquely Christian hope? We have a future that we can't sketch out and draw perfectly, but we can hear Paul's word and tell us the darkness is real, but the light is better. This weight is heavy, but the weight is going to be way better one day. This is ugly, but the beauty is coming. We have a bright future, Christians. But more than that, our hope is not only tied up in the future. Our hope is also traced all the way back to our past, and that takes us to our second thought. We have a redemptive hope in our history. Where do I get that from? Verses 19 through 21. Now Paul switches verbiage, and now it's past tense stuff that's happened. Verse 19 through 21, let's read it together. What hope do we have as we look back to the past? Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Pause right there. What is being talked about now? So Paul just made the comment about our future, and then he goes into very specific language. The word he uses five times in the rest of the section is creation. Creation, verse 19. Creation, verse 20. Creation, verse 21. Creation, verse 22. Creation, verse 23. What is he talking about now? Creation. There's a few options. Everything that's not God, because everything that's not God was created. So that would be everything we see and all the unseen. Angels, demons, whether you believe it or not, all that is what's talked about. Other people think, well, creation could just be talking about mankind, us. I think what's being talked about is simply how we think about creation like the trees outside. The stuff we can touch, the stuff we can smell, the earth we sit on, the universe we sit in. He is talking about creation. How do I get there? Just if you look at verse 23 real quick, just to give you one comparison. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Pause right there. So he's saying not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits. So he sort of eliminates us from what it, creation when he's talking about. So we're not included in the creation he's talking about. Well, maybe he's talking about angels and demons. Here's the problem with that. No demon is longing for the redemption of the adoption of sons. They're actually fighting against it with all their willpower. So what must be talked about as you deduce and kind of cancel out all those is creation in terms of everything God created in this universe that we're a part of. And now he just goes into talking about what is creation doing? And this is fascinating language because he personifies creation as sort of a character in the story that God is writing. Verse 19, let's just look at some of the language Paul uses. For the creation, so think of trees, Mount Everest, Snowball, the most beautiful parts of Canada, the North Pole. You get my point. For the creation 
waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So the first thing, creation is waiting with eager longing. That word eager longing is sort of perched neck, like up and like anticipating. It's like last night at our baseball game, I'm coaching, I'm locked in, I'm like doing my thing, and then Ozzy's like on the other field, Dad! I'm like right in the middle of the most important sports event that happened in all of Arizona yesterday. I am, can I go to the snack bar? Eager expectation that I would say yes because his evil mom said no. (laughs) Creation waits for what's going to happen. Verse 20, what else is creation doing? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Pause right there. This is where it gets pretty technical. So creation's waiting. Verse 21. Or verse 20, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Translation, creation is not what it could be because somebody subjected it to its current state. Who and why? The who options are this. Satan, Adam, the firstborn, or God himself. Satan doesn't have that much power. Adam is the reason for it, but Adam did not have the power to subject creation into anything. The answer is actually God. Creation is in its current state because God subjected it to futility. Think decay. Think destruction. Think death. Why? Because it's in hope. In hope for what? Verse 21, that here's what we're longing for. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's a very intense passage. And if you don't have that passage in your theological tool belt, you will miss a lot of hope in your life. Because everything else just becomes random. And scientists and whoever gets to plug in their reasons why the world is into your worldview. But why is the world the way it is? Romans 8 right here says, It was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected in hope. I have two questions that I think about the past and our hope in this particular passage. Why does it matter? And how does this actually help us to have any hope? First question, why does this even matter? Because it gives you an answer to a very important question that most people skip over. Meaning, how did the world get to be this way? Why not a better version of this world? Why does my houseplant keep dying? Why can't I plant an herb garden to save my life? Why is it like this? Everyone just kind of moves past that in our world because we're not trying to find a here's here's what's so fascinating about being human we are so complicated and comprehensive and yet we are so okay with uh stuff not connecting logically in our worldview we are a bag of contradictions here's the christian answer to what is wrong with the world it's out of genesis it's on the screen here here's what happened adam and eve messed up and then here's what god did And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
think cursed is the creation because of you, Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Here's what work feels like for all of us. Monday morning. Here's why we get paid, because it's not fun to go to work. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Why is the earth not as glorious, beautiful, enjoyable as it could be? Because Adam and Eve sinned. And part of the consequence of their sin was the earth was cursed. By who? By God himself. But Paul says he did it in hope that that was not the final answer. Now, first question was, why does this matter? Second one is, how does this give us any hope? Here's why I think. You have three answers of possibility on how we got to where we're at. Meaning like in history and why this earth is not better. Why it takes me so much money to get my pool at a swimmable chemical balance. You have no God, and this is just how life works. That's sort of like, if you're like a tried and true atheist, if that's you, I'm really glad you're here. I'd love to talk more. But if like, it's just there's no God, and evolution and the Big Bang really do sort of piece together at least reasons why, then it makes sense. Because this world is just sort of random chance, and it's happening. Most people don't think that. And if you think that, I'm really glad you're here. But that's a very minority view. Here's the second thing, which is the majority of you. God did it, and he made it this way, and I don't really know why. Like you talk to most like religious-going, religious-adhering people, whether it's your Catholic family members or your Jewish family members, like there's not a lot of thought to like, why is it not better? Because here's the dilemma, here's the tension that Christianity presents in religion. If there's a good God, not just good, like kind of good, but infinitely good and wonderful and beautiful and generous. Who created this world? Why does my dog die at seven years old? Why is the ozone the way it is? Why is Elon Musk doing his best to get us to Mars? Because this earth is working against us. Why? Most people don't think through connecting those dots. Here's the Christian answer. There is a God. He made this world beautiful and pure and perfect and generous in every possible way. And his ultimate peak of creation, man and woman, would not be subjected to his authority. So he subjected all of creation to futility as a curse for their rebellion and all of our rebellion. That's why the world is the way it is. You're like, that doesn't sound very hopeful. But if you don't have an answer to where we came from, your hope in the moment is not as strong as you think it is. For the Christian, that's what happened. We rebelled. Genesis 3 is not the final story. Romans 8 tells us there's a better chapter coming. And what, it's going to be set free from this bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of children. Our past says we messed this up. In specifically, Adam screwed up, and now the world is the way it is. Now, what is our present hope given that reality? We've got a future hope. We've got a past hope. What is our present
present hope, and it's maybe going to be a little surprising, verse 22 and 23, our present hope is we have a groaning that is to be expressed. Verse 22, using the same analogy, still talking about creation. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. And now he gives this image, ironically on Mother's Day, in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly, eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Pause right there. What is the hope now? He grounds right in the present. It's this image of childbirth. The whole creation has been groaning since that moment when Adam did that thing. It's like childbirth. Why does he use childbirth? I think mean, because it works. It's like, I remember our first son being born. Aubrey was like locked into everything that was about to happen. And I was blissfully unaware. We're watching Office. Pam's pregnant. And I remember the episode. She's pregnant. And she's going to go to the hospital. And she keeps delaying. She keeps stalling. She keeps delaying. We're watching and Aubrey start is crying. I'm like, what is happening here? And it was Pam was so scared to deliver her first child. And Aubrey was so scared to deliver Elijah. And the dumb guy's like, what's going on here? <laughs> Why? Because childbirth is a huge experience that I have no concept on what it's actually like. But Paul wants that illustration to mark how we live presently with our suffering. Here's the other reason why I think it's used. Childbirth, like pain and suffering in general, sort of eliminates all the outside noise. Like if you have acute back pain, it's hard to focus on anything else but what's going on right here. If you're giving birth, if you're in the middle of it, even if you're the most wandering-minded person of all time, like your thoughts are always, there's like a zeroing in, like pff, it's game time. And Paul wants that image to be the image that propels us on how to navigate the present day in our suffering. It's like the groaning of childbirth. And he wants us to remember two things in this childbirth-like present suffering. The first thing is this, that we are the first fruits. Verse 23, it might be weird language, but we'll explain it. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. What's he saying there? First fruits is used all over the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's like farming language talking about actual fruit that is first. Your first fruits, it's the thing you give to God. It's your first and your best. It's similar in giving and tithing in church. What do you give? You give your first fruits, the first and the best. But it's also, especially as you get to the New Testament, the analogy switches from sort of first and best to like a down payment. First fruits are a down payment for something that you're looking forward to in the future. It says this about Jesus. He is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. How do I know that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead? Jesus Christ is the down payment. He's the proof that God's going to do that across the board. The church is the first fruits of this world. We are the preview, the down payment of how God is working in this world. And now in this passage, this is the only time the Holy Spirit is talked about in this particular passage. And it's talked about we being the first fruits of the Spirit. What is Paul saying to us? We have the down payment in us. God himself in us to get through any present suffering we're in. 
Do not forget that. You are not a solo. You are not like a parent that sent you off to test you, to watch you from a distance. God is with you, in you. The first fruits of the Spirit are there with you. The down payment is there. Like those of us that have houses, when did we know the house was ours? It's like, I saw it on Zillow. I called my realtor. I walked through it. I made an offer for some of us who wrote a letter trying to play up all of our strengths and downplay any weakness. We are going to make this neighborhood better than it's ever been, I promise. My kids are sweet, kind, quiet, generous. Look at this smiling picture of my whole family. And then you put an earnest payment down, and then you get the keys. For most of us, when we know, like, this is a done deal, it's when there's money in the game. And God is the same way with us. The Spirit is in us if we have the Spirit. That's the first fruits. So you are not alone in your suffering. He is with you right now as the first fruit, the down payment, the deposit that God is with you. But more than that, God graciously actually gives us something to do in our present suffering that might be foreign to some of us. Here's the second thing he says. Right after he says first fruits of the Spirit in verse 23, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons. We groan inwardly. What do you do with your suffering right now? The Apostle Paul would say, groan inwardly. That word groan is like a deep sigh. Deep, painful, emotional groaning. Just like creation is deeply groaning in its own way, like a woman giving birth, we are the deep sigh, deep groan. It's the same word. I just want to read this to you because it's like, where else is this word used? It's used by Jesus himself on how he deals with a situation that shows that this world is not what it should be. It's out of Mark 7. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read part of the story. So Jesus returns from the region of Tyre and went by the way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech. And now they begged him to lay his hand on him. So here's what Jesus does in this moment. He takes this man aside in private, away from the crowd. He put his fingers into his ears. He spat and he touches his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed. And then said, be opened. And immediately it was open. What is Jesus doing there? He's modeling exactly how we as Christians are supposed to live in this present reality. That's God in the flesh, Jesus. He knows how it started. He knows how it's going. He knows where it's going. He knows all things better than the best parent in here. And he's present in that moment. And what he does as he's about to heal, he knows he's going to heal this guy. But he sees another physical ailment, another form of suffering, another one of his beloved coming to him needing help, another reminder that this world is not as it should be. And he stops, he pulls him aside, and he's same exact word, deep, Sighs, still heals him, but he does not skip over the emotional presence that that moment needed. A deep sigh. The biblical word would be this. It's lamenting. Part of what might be missing for some of us as we walk through suffering, whatever it might be, is like actual lament. So if you're like me, the bend is to sort of skip over and gloss over 
and kind of get to the happier stuff. That's my natural inclination, and it's not a godly inclination. Some of you, like, grown everything. You got a hangnail, and you're acting like World War III just started. You got the never-growners. You got the always-growners. Like, we got all sorts of growners in here. I just want us all to see that Jesus himself groaned. He sighed. He stopped and was emotionally present with the suffering, even the suffering that he was about to fix. Hope for Christian in the moment is that we have a direction to take our pain. Jesus looked up to heaven, it said, and sighed, complained, lamented. We can do the exact same thing. We lament in God's direction. I've shown this in the past, but this is an illustration that's very helpful. You don't need to see all the stuff, but every one of those bubbles represents one of the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms. It's the soundtrack for the people of God. It started with our Jewish friends, and now it's the Christian soundtrack. It's the backdrop of all of our music. Blue is lamenting psalms, which means God is very aware that part of what we need on our Spotify playlist are songs of lament. We need sighs. We need groans. We need cries. We need to complain. Why? Because this world is not what it should be, but God has given us a groan to bring to him. We've got a future hope that's indescribable, a past hope that's tied to this redemptive story that only Christians possess. And we've got a present hope that might be different than what you expected, but we can groan to a God who has grown himself. And now how does Paul end this beautiful passage, verse 24 and 25? Here's what he says to all of us. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In this hope we were saved. What hope is he talking about? What we just walked through. In this hope we were saved. This future hope that God is going to do something glorious. That Jesus Christ really is going to return to this earth and make it incomparable to anything we're going through right now. And we've got a past hope that the curse of Genesis 3 is being undone that it's being turned around, that all that was broken in that moment, all of the creational fracture has a solution and there's an author writing the ultimate story of history and he's fixing what we broke. And we have a present hope that in this moment, God just does not want us to rub dirt on our wounds and move on. He wants us to, like Jesus, cry out to him. We need a hope to get us through whatever suffering is. But here's what I've really tried to be intellectually honest with through all this. Whether it's the rat study or Viktor Frankl, a Jewish man going through horrific suffering, rats made it through with some version of hope. And Viktor, a Jewish man with different beliefs about who Jesus is than I do, made it through. What is the Christian truth that we get to cherish and hold on to that is different than all other hope in this world. Because if you have some sort of purpose outside yourself and meaning outside yourself, we really are strong enough to sort of pull ourselves up and get through and hold on until something comes. But that's not what Christianity is. It's not about just holding on with whatever willpower we have inside of us. It's about a God who has interacted in history and he's with us. 
And Victor Frankl, in, one, in his most famous book, actually starts to hinting at this. I don't think he ever lands on the same conclusion as us. But here's what he says about life. How did he make it through? Auschwitz, how did others make it through? The truth, he says this. Love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasp the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry, human thought, and belief have to impart to us. What is it? Victor, he says this, the salvation of man is through love and in love. Here's what Christians get to add to that. Love has a name, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus did not just watch us wait through our suffering. Here's what Jesus Christ did. He walked towards suffering. In one passage in the New Testament, it says, it set his eyes like flint as he headed towards the suffering that none of us could bear. And that suffering is this, the separation and the rejection and the punishment of God for the sins that Adam started and we have all joined into. Jesus Christ looked at it, counted the cost, knew exactly what it was going to cost and walked towards that suffering. Why? Because love is the ultimate. Except love that is that ultimate is not found in any of us. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ first and foremost. Amen? Some of you are going through it. Like going through it. Do not walk out of here thinking you got to tough it up or you got to reframe what you're going through. But you do need to remember you've got a future that is far better than I could ever explain to you. And you're a part of this past story that is being written as we speak and all the problem of the world is being undone through the penmanship of our great creator and redeemer God. And in this present moment, you need to learn how to groan. You will miss out on a big part of your Christian growth if you never learn how to lament. But in all this, we get to worship Jesus Christ who saw suffering, suffering we caused, and he walked right towards it for us. But that's why we're here. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your perfect love. Thank you for your word that teaches us how to suffer. None of us are given a manual on how to suffer, and yet from day one, every one of us walks into a world full of suffering. And we're all trying to figure out how to do it well. And the world has a million answers, a million distractions, a million pills and drinks and prescriptions to help us numb the pain. And God, ultimately, beneath it all, we need to know you in our suffering. So God, I pray that your spirit would be in this room. Remind us that you are in us as the first fruit, as the down payment, as the reminder that you're with us in this, whatever it is. And God, by your spirit, help us to just lament, not better, but more authentically with you, that we would quickly take our groans to you that we would let you carry our burdens. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.